Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations, rather than books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant and we've got a wonderfully eclectic show for you today. Our featured guest is Georgina Skull talking about her book Regrets of the Dying. We'll hear from Keith Miles and Jeff Towns on their book The Two Dylans comparing the lives of Bob Dylan and Dylan Thomas and Mariah Whelan talks about being poet in residence at Homerton College. We'll give you a proper introduction in a moment Georgina but first of all welcome to Bookmark. Hello. Lovely to have you here. Now, I say it's eclectic, but probably the thing that links all the interviews today is that each of the writers has a personal passion to what they're writing. And this book, Regrets of the Dying, is a very personal book for you, isn't it? It is. About 10 years ago, I nearly died. I had an ectopic pregnancy. And I suppose it made me reevaluate my life and what I was doing and the fact that I was drifting. And I continued to drift even afterwards. I was kind of forced into making some changes and really looking at where I was. And the book is how I did it, really. Yeah, I mean, not surprising it would have such an effect on you. Although you say in the introduction you'd always really had a sense of of time passing, of the limits of time, if you like. Yeah, completely. I mean, even when I was 18, I remember turning 18 and just being completely despondent. I was what have I done? And <laughs> I think it's because you see it so much in the media of people doing things so early, releasing books and setting up businesses and just being superstars so young and as the years pass on you think well what have I done and how have I not hit that already especially when you're ambitious and I am an ambitious person but kind of nothing was really happening on that front so yeah I've always had that feeling of needing to have a list and ticking stuff off and what have I done this year and taking account of stuff but missing the point of it all in the process really. And what we wouldn't give to be 18 now. Oh, my God. (laughs) Although I have to say now, I've just turned 49 and I'm a lot happier now than I was when I was 18. I think you just become more at home with yourself and you care less what people think. And I mean, that's the whole, you know, big part of the book is finding out who you are and what you want and being comfortable with that. And I do think that's a privilege that age gives you. Stuff like body image and stuff like that when you're 18 is a nightmare. And then you look back at pictures of yourself and you're like, what was I worried about? But you embrace what you have. You have to or you don't, and it's better that you do, really. And it's quite a leap from having something like that, a near-death experience, if you like, to writing a book about death and regret. What were the steps in between? I'd been writing short stories and radio stuff since I was about 19, 20, so it was a long time coming to have a book out. I'm not sure if I ever really planned to write a book. My stuff had always been audio or on the screen. But for this, I created a podcast because literally I felt like I'm going a bit mad here I know what I should be doing I know I should be making changes why am I not I need a reminder and I'm sure there's other people out there that feel the same why am I kind of every year drifting through and not making these big decisions am I happy with my relationship am I happy with my income am I happy you know all these different components of your life and that so many of them were off they're off kilter and I know they were But the longer I left it, the harder it seemed to be. And I think it just got to a point where I tried everything else. So I did the podcast, I did a few episodes, went out, found people that would be willing to talk to me, which is terrifying because I'm not someone that likes to upset people. I don't want to, you know, rock the boat. But I just 
wanted to gently go, if you want to talk, I'm here and listen to what they had to say. And the podcast did quite well for an indie. An agent contacted me and he thought it could be the potential for a book. And I was thinking, yeah, that would be lovely because I get to go meet more people and expand on it and also add in a bit of this is what I found. Because on the podcast, it was just... I wanted to keep it just their voice because it was them that was important, not me, in any way, shape or form. So in the book, I managed to have at the end chapters so I could go, these are the top 10 things that I found out and read this. Hopefully it will help you a little bit like it's helped me. Looking forward to talking to you about the book. But let's hear your first choice of music now. Shirelle and Alexander O'Neill, Saturday Love. Why this one? I love old school soul. And although this isn't classic soul, it reminds me of being a kid. Just being that ambitious child, sitting in your bedroom, listening to The Quiet Storm on a Sunday night on, on Radio 1 and just going, I wonder what my life will be. You're like, what will happen? That song just reminds me of it, like back in the day music. It just has that vibe about it. And that was Shirelle and Alexander O'Neill Saturday. Love the first choice of music on Bookmark Today from our featured guest, Georgina Skull. Georgina is a writer and developer of original radio drama, film and podcast. In 2017, she released The Regrets of the Dying podcast, which explored eight stories of life, death and regrets. Her book of the same name came out last year, subtitled Stories and Wisdom that Remind Us How to Live. Woman's Own called it a powerful and enlightening read, and the actor and Strictly star Greg Wise described it as wonderful, truly engrossing and touching. And uh, we will be talking about issues connected with death and terminal illness in this show, so take this as your trigger warning. Having said that, Georgina, I enjoyed it very much. And we're obviously going to talk to you about the findings of the book. But just to pull back a little bit, first of all, what criteria did you have for the people you talked to? So they had to be over the age of 70, which doesn't really sound that old to me now I'm 49, but (laughs) over the age of 70 and either have a terminal prognosis or have some kind of genetic illness, which would mean they, they know they're going to live a shortened life. And how did you find these people? Through groups, through forums. One of the women was a woman in Canada. She was the one that was married to a man that didn't particularly love her or care for her for years and years. And I noticed her commenting on a message board. So I managed to track her down and said, would you like to talk? And she was the loveliest person ever. It took quite a long time to find the people because I wanted a mixture of different stories. I wanted to hear from people that have been affected by love and work that didn't work out or where they were really successful in business but maybe regretted the amount of time they spent on it. I suppose boiled down to it, all the different stories could be seen as almost cliche, like I worked too much and I should have spent more time with my family. But for me, I think I felt like I needed to delve a bit deeper to hear the stories behind the stories. So it's like, this is the bullet point of that. But the real thing is we all do things for a reason. That man I'm talking about, Alan, he worked really hard for his family because the family he grew up in didn't have much money. So his main aim was to create a good, solid financial basis for his family so they were comfortable. But in the process, maybe went a bit too far in the other way. The pendulum swung a bit too far. So the basic mixture of stories I wanted to find and people that wanted to talk. Because this is quite personal stuff they're talking about and telling you who they barely know. How did that feel? I mean, how did that interaction happen? Generally what happened is I would go to them, feel very nervous, sit down, we'd have a cup of tea and I'd end up just sitting on the floor. They'd sit on the sofa or chair and I'd just start recording 
And then they kind of look into the near distance and then just kind of recount what happened. Sometimes these conversations would go on for two or more hours. Sometimes people talk in circles and some people have organised their thoughts in their head already, so they're quite clear-cut. But it really is like a storytelling thing. And even though I say I interviewed them, I didn't really interview them at all. You give them a basic idea of what you want to talk about and then I just press record. And pretty much for every interview, I didn't really have to ask many questions at all. Some of these people are contemplating their own death. They've got limited time. Yeah. How did they feel about talking? Were they happy to have an opportunity to express something? I think they were relieved a lot of the time. I would get a message afterwards and they'd go, it was good to talk openly. I think something we do do, which is completely understandable, is that when we're talking to somebody who is terminal or older, we are so worried about upsetting them that we don't allow them to have their say. And it's something I feel very strongly against because everyone has a story inside of them and they have a right to express it, really. And they shouldn't have to keep it in in case they upset somebody near and dear to them. They would say, oh, I tried to talk to so-and-so about it, but they'd be like, no, no, don't worry about it, just trying to quiet them down. And I think talking to a stranger obviously helps because it's kind of like talking to a therapist. There is nothing in the game. You know, they're not going to upset me. Well, actually, a lot of the times they did. You have a cry once you're outside, but I'm not going to personally be upset by it. It's not going to change the way I perceive them in any way, shape or form because most people are interesting. They're interesting, cool, nice human beings who sometimes make a mistake, and that's all of us, right? So I think if you go in without any judgment, then they know they can just open themselves up and talk, you know, and maybe pass on what they've learned. And you've divided it into sections, work, family and friends, love hard decisions and reflections. How did you decide on those um, categories? The stories kind of just fell into those main areas, really, because they are the main areas of our lives, aren't they? Family, work, the things that we spend our time on. And did you find common themes? And did they, um, two questions in one here, did they vary depending on the age and gender and uh, circumstances of the person? How someone feels about death was very different depending on the age, which is completely understandable. You know, some of them are in their 30s and 40s. You know, lots of us who are older than that are like, I'm just getting started. I feel like I'm just hitting my stride now. I'm just working out who I am. And so in your 30s and 40s, you've still got ambitions. You might still want to have children or have more children. Whereas if you're facing it when you're in your 70s or 80s, you would have hoped that you would have known. You People generally are a bit more at peace with it and a bit more pragmatic about it. And I think that goes hand in hand with the kind of regrets someone would have. So if you're 70 or 80, it might be a moment in time when you were younger where you've gone, I wish I did that slightly differently. Like with a, a chap called Sid, and it was a love. You know, he was in love with somebody. Oh, that's it didn't heartbreaking, work. that story. Yeah, he regrets that. He wished he could have made that love work, and he's still pining after it, never got married, never settled down, would have loved children, all these other things that didn't happen because of those decisions he made at that time. Even though all the regrets are different, the common themes are trying to make other people happy, trying to live up to other people's expectations. These are the regrets that people have, that yeah. they regret doing this. Yeah, they regret doing this, yeah, because sometimes we make decisions to fulfil other people's perception of us, that we're really smart so we have to be this, that we're really like this so we've got to be this. And we do that and we go against maybe what deep down we think we want to do. Sometimes people don't adapt Sometimes people think they want this and over the years what they want changes. So they'll beat themselves up about not achieving that one thing. 
But actually, I've, over the years, they don't really want that anymore. So that's the regret that they've yeah. held on to something that was important to them once and not, yeah. not realised that yeah. actually it's relatively unimportant now. You have to reconfigure your brain and go, at 20, I may have wanted that. And I'm sad that that didn't happen. But at 40, 50, 60, is that really important to me anymore? And if it isn't, we need to set it aside. I think the other really big one I, I found was the rewriting of history. A bit like Alan was talking about, the chap that had worked really hard and made lots of money but maybe missed out on some of the family life. And now that he's, he's in his early 50s and he's got brain cancer, he knows that his time is finite. And so it's that whole thing where you, maybe you were born with not much money, you are raised and the things are a bit of a struggle, so you decide that's the main thing. That's the thing I want to fulfil in myself. So you look back and you say, well, things were really tricky when I was a child, so I don't want that to be the way for my life or for my children. So you put all of your impetus and passion into creating that income and maybe forget all the other things. And then what tends to happen is then the next generation comes along and say, well, I love my dad, but we didn't see much of him or I love my mum, but she wasn't really around much. So I want to do okay, but actually money's not my main goal. So it feels sometimes this rewriting of history creates a swinging of a pendulum, you know, or I didn't have much love as a child. So then love is a thing you chase after. Your kids or your friends see you and go, life's got to be more than just this chasing after the highs and lows of love. Then they might go away and go, I'm never getting married. I'm never having a relationship. And it just goes back and forward. Those specific stories about regretting a certain moment, there's one of the stories of a woman who witnesses a crime and doesn't tell anyone who's talked out of telling anyone. They are heartbreaking moments, aren't they? Because that one moment, that one decision which actually she was too young, really, to have any control over, has dominated her whole life. Yeah, but like you say, there's a reason for it. So Millicent saw something, she wished she'd said something, but she lived in a house where her mum was quite domineering and didn't really like outsiders inside the house. So she had to make a decision. And in those days, you know, many, many moons ago, the parents ruled the roost. It was not like now where you're much more of an equal partner. So did she have a really have a choice? She probably really didn't. But the regret, I think, is because she went against who she is. It's that whole thing of most of us fundamentally have a thing of this is my moral compass, this is who I am, this is what I would like to do. And when we start to veer away from that, that's where the regrets come in. Thank you, children. It's a fascinating stuff. Uh, well, let's just take a, a, a sidestep now and hear about Bob Dylan and Dylan Thomas. Jeff Towns is one of the world's leading experts on Dylan Thomas. His first bookstore in Swansea was called Dylan's Bookshop, in tribute to the poet who was born and raised in the city. As an antiquarian bookseller, he has, over the years, procured many Dylan Thomas treasures which have been exhibited around the world. Keith Miles has been inspired by Bob Dylan since seeing him perform live at the Isle of Wight Festival in 1969. He is co-curator of the Dylan Room at London's Troubadour Club and co-author of books on Dylan's time in London and New York. And when I spoke to Jeff and Keith, I started by asking Keith if Dylan Thomas and Bob Dylan had more in common than their name. They have the same kind of attitude to life, really, I think, and that came out through the book. As far as artists and creatively there is one chapter on a, a particular song but they aren't linked in that way it's really their attitude the only other way that I think they're particularly linked is I think that what both Bob Dylan does and what Dylan Thomas did particularly with things like Under Milk Wood which is 
Poetry for Voices is that they both do something that was once described as performed literature. And what were the similarities in their attitudes? Dylan Thomas didn't get out of his 30s, bless him, and Bob Dylan's 81 and still going. One of the things that they do is enjoy life and enjoy their work. Um, You listen to Bob Dylan's theme time radio hour and you hear someone who enthuses so very much about literature and and art and and music. They lived a hundred lives, you know, they really were extraordinary characters um, who crammed a heck of a lot in. Bob Dylan still does. He's touring with his latest album at the age of 81. So he really does cram it all in. Linked by attitudes and perform literature, and you've linked them by their name, which is a sort of irony, really, isn't it? Because Bob Dylan was not his original name. He was originally Robert Allen Zimmerman from a very nice Jewish family in Minnesota. Really, at the time he was in Minnesota, in Dinky Town, in the folk circles there, a friend of his, Richard Freiner, carried around a book of Dylan Thomas's poems. He liked the attitude. He liked the sort of style of Dylan Thomas. And it was really looking for a name. I I think he could have chosen many, but he chose one that was pretty snappy. People don't appreciate that until Dylan Thomas's father found the name Dylan in a very old ancient Welsh text called the Mabaginion, there were no Dylans in this world. You know, there are now millions and millions. And we, we find that, you know, going back through the records, how the name Dylan developed entirely from Dylan Thomas. You know, we were always wanting to prove as categorically as we possibly could in the book that that is where Robert Allen Zimmerman got his name change. And what we find is in the early days in in the folk scene, it was clear that Bob was telling everyone that's where he got his name from. Even in Chronicles, his his autobiography in in reasonably recent years, um, he said that's where he gets his name from. It was only in the intervening time in the mid-60s when there was some doubt about this. And the doubt was put there by a person called Bob Dylan, who would uh, give interviews and say, no, 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 it's something else. And, and you know, he, he loved to muddy the waters. And is it fair to say that both of you came to Dylan Thomas through Bob Dylan? Yes, very much. I mean, I wanted to write a book that connected the two, looked at the connections between them. And I was lucky to be introduced to Jeff, who is a wonderful writer about Dylan Thomas. But Jeff actually, and, and he would tell you this himself, he, he he came to Dylan Thomas, in Dylan Thomas, originally through Bob Dylan. You know, people found his music, people had the albums. One of the things we want to do in The Two Dylans is for Bob Dylan fans to find out more about Dylan Thomas and Dylan Thomas fans to find out more about Bob Dylan. And it's extraordinary. It's it's 2022 and this is the first book about the two Dylans. Although someone did say to me, why on earth didn't you make it three Dylans and bring in the rabbit from Magic (laughs) (laughs) Rabbit? That's your next book. Did they use words differently? Bob Dylan sort of said, I think if I could sing the words, it's a song. If I can't, it's a poem. Now, Dylan Thomas never thought he was writing songs. When Keith and I talk about performed literature, I think we're referring to the fact that Dylan Thomas did these reading tours in the UK and then also across America, performing his poetry in a very significant, eccentric, personal manner. And Bob Dylan 
he's got this style of performance and presenting his words. Um, we've talked about the similarities in their approach to life and their attitudes, but what about their personalities? They've both lived very, very full lives, you know, the, the meaningful life, as Bob Dylan would call it. Their wonderful enthusiasm for living life to the full was a, a great example to many artists and singers, etc., that followed them. Do you think they would have got along if they'd have met? <laughs> it's an interesting notion. Back in 1995, a friend of mine wrote a play, which he called A Handful of Rain, which is a quote from Bob Dylan. And the play was an imaginary meeting in the Chelsea Hotel between Bob Dylan and Dylan Thomas. And in that play, they both stayed at the Chelsea Hotel. So that was the significance. Keith has written all about this in his book about Bob Dylan in New York. And Dylan's time in New York is covered. And he ended up staying at the Chelsea Hotel. And in fact, it was there that he collapsed before his death in hospital a few days later. In the play, they definitely get on. But it's imaginative, isn't it? I want them to get on. And I do think that given all the things that Keith and I have discovered that they shared an interest in, Charlie Chaplin and Rambo and Johnny Ray and Stravinsky, you know, they had a lot in common. So there's no reason that they shouldn't have got on. I think they'd have a lot to talk about. Jeff's mm. right. We've seen the connections. They had very similar loves, you know, a full range of, of interests that they would both talk about. And I like to think they'd get on. I think you've got to have to get Bob on the, exactly the right moment and not too grouchy. I like to think they would possibly, as artists, collaborate on something and then Bob Dylan wouldn't release it. <laughs> and you've got a foreword in this book from the wonderful Karis Matthews. How did that come about? I've been a friend of Karis's. I'm very lucky and pleased to say for 20 years, I think now. We met when she was making a, a TV programme about Celtic poetry and we remain friends. What was interesting about Karis was she's a rock and roller for sure, and I think has met Bob Dylan a few times. But Karis grew up in Swansea, and um, I think I can tell you she's got a new edition of Dylan Thomas's Under Milk Wood coming out. So Karis was all across Bob Dylan and Dylan Thomas, and she's a wonderful enthusiast. So she seemed the ideal, per ideal person to give us a few words about this book. And she was so spontaneous and swift in producing that wonderful introduction. It was just right. There's a poem at the beginning of the book by Dylan Thomas's daughter about Bob Dylan. And Keith, you're going to read that for us. It's a poem called Sorry. You should be sorry, Bob D. You poached the name from my dad. Memphis, not near the sea, cannot catch sea son of wave. My dad was Dylan Thomas, that's what I say honest. Not that I want to brag, Bob Dylan doesn't quite have. The seashell sound of the grave, it's all over now, baby blue. Sorry, Bob. And Bob Dylan and Dylan Thomas, The Two Dylans by Keith Miles and Jeff Towns is published by McNidder and Grace. We're talking on Bookmark today to Georgina Skull about her book, Regrets of the Dying. One of the people you spoke to had no regrets. This surprised me that there weren't actually more people who had no regrets, because when we think about it casually, maybe over a beer in the pub, mm. we always think, do I have regrets? No, that made me the person I am. Yeah. But there was only one person who categorically in your book said, I have absolutely no regrets. Yeah, Simon. I think I was a bit perplexed by it before I spoke to him. 
because I'm someone that gathers regrets quite <laughs> liberally. So, yeah, I was a bit like, well, how can you get through it? But I think it depends on how you perceive a regret, really. His idea was, I might regret stuff, but if I say sorry, make amends, try and work out what I can learn from it, then it's not really regret. It's past and it's done. It's not something I hold on to. For other people, they might think of regrets as a different thing. I mean, lots of people, I would casually ask, do you have any regrets? Most people will say no straight away. But then if I get them chatting and relaxing, they've got something. Everyone's got something. I wish I'd tried this or I wish I'd done this or maybe I should have gone out with that person instead of this person. But normally, and I think this is the reason why Simon said he didn't have any regrets, we do what we do for a reason. You know, there'll be a reason why you didn't take that job. There'll be a reason why you didn't travel to that place. Even if it's that you're scared or that you're nervous, there's a reason why you'd be scared or nervous. I think he had a really good positive way of thinking about it because he didn't carry it around with him. He could pack it away and just kind of move on. And I think that's a lighter way to live. Did you find any difference between people who had a, a faith and people who didn't have a faith, given that most of them were thinking about death? No, not really. Near the end of the book, there's a, a chapter where I spoke to two chaplains. One was humanist and one was Anglican. And I think they said at the end, when people are saying goodbye and with the religious, when they're having the last rites, that if someone was of religious, they might have something to offload. So maybe if you're there at the very end, then they might have something to say. But when it came to me, I don't think it seemed to make make any difference. And it seemed to me that the people you spoke to with a terminal diagnosis actually almost felt liberated by having that diagnosis. There was something about knowing their time was limited. One of them said it's like pressing the reset button. Yeah. It freed them somehow. I think it can do. I think it really depends on what day you'd speak to them. With the ones that are still with us, I've kept in contact and I chat to them once in a while or, you know, with Sid, I take him out for lunch and there was someone I interviewed called Libby. Actually, she, her chapter's more... She wrote it, basically. So I'd ask her a question, then she'd write, and then I'd edit it down. She calls it, like, grieving in reverse. When you're the one dying, you grieve in reverse. So all those five stages of grief that people talk about, you know, you go through the anger, and but it's cyclical, so you kind of... It keeps on going around. So on some days, it'll be like, what a beautiful day. I'm walking along the beach, I'm with people that I love, and everything's great. And then you have another day where you, your body just feels so bad, you can't feel like that. You know, it's impossible. So although I think generally it does make you recalibrate what you have, I think it does depend. It's not like I'm going to die right, I'm going to make the most of every second because you can have a terminal diagnosis and you could then live for six months, maybe a year after that, maybe even a little bit longer. And it's very hard to keep that I'm going to make the most of things thing I mean, I know when I nearly died, it was very quick. And the way I thought I would feel, I didn't. I thought, this is it. This will be the thing that kicks me out of my stupor, that will get me going. And it, it didn't at all. It's weird. And I almost felt guilty that it didn't. I've been given a second chance. What am I doing with it? There's all these other people in the world that don't have that. They don't have that privilege. Or they haven't had the weird privilege of nearly dying and going you know this is going to end one day, right? And that's kind of what it is. It's re remembering that it's a finite amount of time that you're on this earth. If there's things that you want to do, then you need to do them. You need to find a way. 
you have to decide what you actually want. You have to be really honest with yourself. And you either have to go, I thought I wanted this, but actually I'm happy with this. I'm content with this. And appreciate it. Like appreciate the things that you have. Or you have to go, actually, that's not me. And this is actually making me unhappy. Then you have to find a way to change it. Well, let's take a break now and just listen to your second choice of music, which is the soundtrack from The English Patient and the track, What Else Do You Love? Why this one? So I was born in London, central London. And then when I was like nine, ten, I moved to the Isle of Wight for a few years when I went to school. Anthony Minghella, who made The English Patient, is from the Isle of Wight. There's so many bits in that film that are from the island. When I lived there, I, I loved it to begin with, but then I hated it. I just wanted to be back in London because it was quite boring. But now when I go back, I can see the beauty of it. It's just a beautiful place, basically. And there's some scenes in it. I don't know if you remember the scene when she's, he's carrying her to the main love story and he's kind of carrying her and she's dressed all in white oh yes famous scene it's like he's carrying her to her wedding that's what I always think and I'm like oh my god anyway this film the soundtrack is just beautiful I always listen to soundtracks when I'm working as well when I'm writing I have my headphones on blinds down side light on (laughs) (laughs) no yeah I'm like in a cocoon (laughs) yeah so soundtracks are it basically when I'm when I'm writing so that's another reason (laughs) Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations wrapped up in books. And we're talking on Bookmark today to Georgina Skull about her book, Regrets of the Dying. Uh, Georgina, you ended up interviewing your own dad as well. I did. And revisiting a comment he'd made in the past. How was that? Nerve-wracking. Yeah, when I was about 14, 15, I'd asked him what his biggest regret was. And he said it was having children, which was... (laughs) (laughs) Not what a 14-year-old wants to hear. No. And I think it always played on my mind... He wasn't a man that was built to have a family, really. He probably shouldn't have had children, which just sounds weird, given <laughs> that I'm sat here and I have a brother and a sister, so he didn't exactly stop at one either. He was an artist from a working-class background. Mum was Romany Gypsy, his dad was from a Norwegian family, and their focus was money. So I don't think they really took seriously how good he was. And he was fantastic. And I think having children, he felt in his mind, took away from all that. The reality was something very different. My mum was incredibly supportive and would have done anything to but help him along the way. But when you asked him about this comment, he barely remembered... He didn't remember ma- it. ...making it. It's something that had left such a mark on me. But when he said he didn't remember and he said, oh, I must have been depressed and I can't really remember it, I'm not sure I completely believed him. And I said that at the bottom of the chapter. Well, I think that's probably how he feels now, or he did as an older person... He kind of was glad that he'd had children. But in his day-to-day life, you kind of knew that he didn't really want you. He didn't really want to spend much time with us or he would take off and you wouldn't see him for ages and it was just a bit erratic. But did it give you closure at all? It gave me closure because, I don't know, it just made me realise he, he probably shouldn't have been a dad. But in those intervening years between 14 and when I actually spoke to him, in those last few years we became quite good friends and I got to like him. So I could put it aside and I could go, I know what he meant. 
I've got a child and I know how much they can take out of you. He, in a way, was telling himself a little bit of a fib about the regret he was telling himself a fib because deep down he was in charge of whether his career was soaring or not. And that was on him, not on us. And I think deep down he knew that. So I kind of felt fine with it. He actually died in September. So when I went to the funeral, my brother and sister were there. And I was saying, look, I talked to Dad and he said this. But he said it wasn't a regret and he was glad he had us and we were the best thing for him. And they both said, yeah, he said that to us too. <laughs> so he, he'd said it to all three of us that, you know, having children was like the biggest blight on his life when he was younger. But he was a different person then. I can't judge him for who he was back then. I could only take him for what he was at that moment and I'd managed to forge a good relationship with him and I miss him very much, I have to say. What about the effect of the other interviews on you? Because you heard some quite startling stuff and uh, very heart-wrenching stuff. How has that affected you? Has it changed you? I mean, it has because some of them you connect with a bit more than others. Anthea had um, skin cancer she was just a lovely woman. She was funny and bright. And when she died, I just was beside myself. And you're... So I'm getting a bit upset. It's OK. Take your time. Um, it seems so silly to be upset about someone you've only really spoken to once. But I feel like, even though I know these things have to happen, I still have this ridiculous idea that it's unfair. <laughs> that um, this really good person that made such a lovely you know, impact on other people's lives... You know, why should it be her and not this person, you know? This situation of interviewing people who, who are going to die is, is putting yourself in this position of feeling this emotion, isn't it? Of hearing quite intimate things and possibly finding out that they're not with us anymore. Yeah, I, I, there are moments where I, where I went, I hope this helps other people because <laughs> it can be, yeah, a bit much sometimes. But whatever you're feeling is nothing compared to what they're feeling. It's just like a nanosecond because they're preparing for something that can't be undone, you know, and they're saying goodbye to people that they love. And I'm thinking of the stories. Katie, she was in her early 30s when she died. She'd already passed by the time I... She had a blog, basically, and I, I spoke to her widow, and he was just like, yeah, I want her story told. So, And that I connected with that one because her children were very young when she died, and... My daughter, when I nearly died, was just coming up for two. And there are moments where I go, she might never have known me. The way I can't play board games because I get too annoyed when I lose and, you know, my love of 80s music and, you <laughs> know... have missed out all of that. <laughs> all, that all that glorious stuff, you know. And those blank spaces would have had to be filled by other people. I hope they would have been filled by other people. And at the end, you have that list of, yeah. of 10 points uh, that you're, you're passing on. And these are things that you learnt as a direct experience of talking to the people in your book. Yeah. And the reoccurring themes, when you were saying before, like the three I gave you were kind of like overall ones, but these ten are specific things that after speaking to everybody and kind of contemplating what they told me was kind of what I came up with, right, OK, if you want to live a slightly less regretful life, here are your top tens. It's a good roadmap, yeah. I mean, that was the idea. I wasn't actually intending to do a bullet point. I think the publisher just said, well, how about something like this? And I just felt it was a bit obvious because I wanted to dig deeper I didn't want it to be just a trite list that could be easily read but not really digested but actually after reading it I felt like it was needed so I added it as an extra chapter because I was thinking yeah it's like a little reminder at the end of 
watch out for this stuff. Well, thank you, Georgina. We'll, we'll come back to you in just a moment, but let's, let's take a break and hear some poetry from Mariah Whelan. Mariah's debut poetry collection, The Love I Do To You, was published in 2019 and shortlisted for the Poetry Book Awards, the Melita Hume Prize, and was the winner of the A.M. Heath Prize. She's the Jacqueline Bardsley Poet-in-Residence at Homerton College at the University of Cambridge. And I started by asking Mariah what a poet-in-residence does, and I should say that Mariah's baby daughter was with us throughout the interview and occasionally makes herself heard. The poet-in-residence was created to inject as much poetry as possible into college life. My job is to write poetry for the college, encourage college members to write their own poetry, and then just sort of add poetry into every single occasion that we can. So if there's a posh dinner or students matriculating, I write a poem about it. So it's about getting poetry into the fabric of college life. There's an element there of writing poetry to order. How how easy is that? I have been writing poetry professionally now for 15, 20 years. So the idea of inspiration isn't one I'm particularly wedded to. You can apply sort of the tools of craft to any occasion and come up with a poem. And it helps that I really enjoy being part of the college community and really like the people that I've met. I want to write things for them and about them. And we also have amazing grounds at Homerton, which are very, very, very easy to write about. (laughs) And in terms of your writing generally, was it always going to be poetry for you? Well, it was a bit funny, actually. So in my undergraduate degree, I applied for a short story course and a poetry course. I didn't get onto the short story course, but I did get onto the poetry course. And then just sort of (laughs) gained momentum of its own. And has it changed over the years you're writing? You say you've been doing it 15, 20 years. Has it changed? Yeah, absolutely. I spent a lot of time at the beginning of my poetry writing career mastering fixed forms, particularly so poems like sonnets and odes. Now that I've mastered those things, I'm coming up with more sort of self-invented techniques, things that are more experimental, a bit more out there, rather than sticking to those well-worn, established basics. And we can hear in the background your your little baby. So you've become a mum recently. Has that changed yeah. your focus and what you want to write about? Sort of. I think there's always a bit of a lag when it comes to poetry and life events. It sort of takes a while for you to internalise and process things that happen to you. So you might not end up writing about a life event until sort of a year afterwards two years afterwards it takes a little bit of time to sort of ferment and brew I haven't written about her yet or being pregnant or changes in my life but I I think it will come and I know from your website that you're interested in interdisciplinary work can you tell me more about that what exactly that means and the kind of people you work with so I work with academics mostly in university settings work at Homerton, obviously. I'm also a fellow in creative practice at UCL. It's my job to collaborate with more traditional academics and see how my methods, my research methods, my poetry writing methods, might complement, change, augment the methods they use in their research. So how can you inject creativity into the study of the social sciences? into the rehabilitation of stroke victims, for example. Those are some projects that I've worked on. And it can create some really interesting results. 
Yes, I suppose you're wedding together two things that you might not normally put together. Totally. And sort of the Academy hasn't always been particularly friendly to the creative arts. It's always seen them as sort of a little bit of a decoration on top of the real research, but that's changing. Institutions are much more interested in bringing creativity into academia. And you're going to read some poetry now for us. Got some interesting sound effects in the background, but that's all right. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to read um, a poem that is from my first book, which is all about the time when I was living in Japan um, for a number of years. And this is set in a tuna market in Tokyo. The tuna auction, Tsukiji Market. The last tuna lay on a wooden slat, dead. Silver belly split, cow heavy curves and arch corrugated in snow. The meat hissed with cold. The ridged place where its gills once were stuffed with tarpaulin, head and lunate tail removed. Bidding broke like a wave over the hall. The voice of the auctioneer scouring the concrete floor, thick with venous fish slurry. My feet disturbing a hot froth of blood, bleach and steam escaping from opened bodies. Afterwards, the ice-cured haunch was almost close enough to touch. Its frost coat steamed like a prayer, whispered how the tuna had once swum, chandelier bright in the Pacific succumbing to its hot urges to seed the blue with its sperm or eggs. Who could tell from the bloody absence of its sex? So this one is from the book that I've just finished writing as part of my PhD, actually. It's from a sequence where the speaker of the poems is exploring the moorland where their father grew up and they've just arrived at that moorland in this poem. Information point. My father's village shares colours with its map. Graphite, porpoise, charcoal, anchor. You can tell the map is the work of an amateur by two things. The lack of attention to light reflected off the glass and the faith in spatial orthodoxies as if the best way to communicate time is the exact plotting of objects and the half miles between them. Colours degrade behind the glass so slowly, it's hard to tell anything's changed day to day until the path over the moor turns to pale ash and busloads of tourists hunting for Brontes congregate by the co-op, scratching their heads through neon rain jackets, lit up like Christmas lights in the mithering rain. Thank you. And you talk about working with academics there, working in academic context, the work that you do. Do you find that there's a resistance to poetry? I think there's a resistance so much as a fear. A lot of people are sort of like, oh, poetry. Oh, no, I did that at school and it's terribly difficult. So it's not really a a resistance. It's much more of a fear-based thing. And the most common reaction is people saying, I love poetry. I could never do it. So people thinking that it's some sort of magical thing that is beyond them. And you've been doing this work with Literature Cambridge. Tell me about that. Yes. So I've been working with Literature Cambridge for about a year now. It's absolutely fantastic, really. We have very little access in this country, I think, to adult education. So learning for pleasure, for enrichment, for intellectual expansion and engagement. 
And what Literature Cambridge does is it brings sort of world-class teaching and research to everybody. Anyone can participate, anyone can join in. And I've had an absolute wonderful experience teaching people from all across the UK and internationally who come together to share a mutual love of learning and of poetry in my case. And they enrich my practice as much as I do theirs because they're coming at it very often from a non-university based experience, which brings a totally fresh perspective, which can be really exciting. Yes, I can hear and see how excited you are by this and that opportunity, as you say, for older people often to learn to go back into literature and rediscover new things with different life experiences. Exactly. It's such a shame that we sort of have this cutoff point. Once you get to 18, that's it, off right out into the world, either into formal education or the world of work. Whereas education really should be a lifelong thing, really, shouldn't it? So what's next for you, Mariah, other than being a a mum, which is, you know, (laughs) I mean, that's that's a full time plus job. I'm really moving into teaching adult learners at the moment. I've previously always lectured and taught it in undergraduate level and master's level in universities. But fitting that in around bubs is a bit difficult, to be honest. So I'm teaching evening and weekend courses mostly now, which is really exciting. And I've just finished one book that's going to be coming out beginning of 2023. And then I'm going to have to get cracking on writing another book, which is always terrifying and exciting in equal measures. The Love I Do To You by Mariah Whelan is published by Eyewear Publishing. We've been talking on Bookmark today to Georgina Skull about her book, Regrets of the Dying, published by Welbeck. Well, Georgina, what's next for you then? What are you doing at the moment? I'm working on a few audio projects and I've just finished another screenplay. And you've stayed in touch, as you said, with some of those that you can stay in touch with that you worked with on this book. That's good to hear. Yeah, Alan has become, well, one of my best friends, actually, weirdly. We talk often. He's a good, he's a good chap. He's just best of British, to be honest. So, yeah. <laughs> and a question we ask all our guests, all our featured guests on Bookmark, what are you reading at the moment? I am reading Adventures in the Screen, Adventures in the Screen World by William Goldman. Which is a great book. It's a great book, yeah. I read it years ago and I was just going through my uh, shelves and going, OK, I need to that one I've forgotten that one he did Marathon Man there's loads of scenes in that I love he did so, yeah, some Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid yeah, yeah. He's, a, he's a funny writer I think you just had that wonderful way of doing something that felt quite artistic but also having a broad breach so that you could take it on multiple levels it tells you something but also entertains you at the same time you might have tempted me to dig it out of my books and reread it we'll come back to you for your last choice of music in just a moment but a heads up that our next show well there's a kind of science fiction and fantasy theme to it our featured guest is andrew stickland talking about his ya science fiction novel the arcadian incident we'll hear from nicole arend on vamps fresh blood and ellen hunter will chat about his novel the feather and the lamp but we'll sign out now georgina with your last choice of music which is starlings by elbow why this one i was going to give you a reason for this one just that it's beautiful and it's i think i said in my email to you the most unromantic romantic song ever but the other reason is when i was starting to write the book i decided that probably it was time to call time on my marriage and we've been together for 22 years that was a very difficult thing to do And um, I fell in love again. And this reminds me of him. And he sent it to me 
So um, talking about orange groves and love and stuff like that. So that's the reason. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio.